This is Leave Your Mark. I'm Vince Cortez, and today's guest is Dr. John Demartini. He is a Renaissance polymath, a human behavior expert, life coach, speaker, founder, and the CEO of the Demartini Institute. He's an author of over 40 self-help books, his latest, The Breakthrough Experience. He's also a contributor in the world-renowned movie, The Secret, and he's an educator of thousands of students on accessing your seven greatest powers. Dr. John, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast, Leave Your Mark, with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's fly, loose fit it. It's Cortez. If freeze and chubb is in it. It's Cortez. Leave Your Mark is about inspiring the world, one guess at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb, it's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. Thank you for uh, inviting me on and being patient with me getting on here. <laughs> yeah, the, the technical difficulties we're talking from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania over into Dubai. And uh, it, it's always a pleasure. I know you're very busy, so the idea you fit us into your schedule, I'm very excited to talk to you. So uh, what I want to get into is, is right to it is you're born and raised in Houston, Texas. Um, yes. Your mother, uh, Beth, she's an artist and a homemaker. Your dad, A.G. Martini, an engineer and an entrepreneur. Uh, and you have one older sister. And what was childhood like in Houston, Texas growing up? I, I was born with a of leg and arm deformity and i had a speech impediment when i was a child so the first four years of my life was in braces and doing all kind of muscular activities with my mouth so that was a bit of a challenge because people thought you're weird and then i uh then i started to go and try to do school and no matter what i did i just wasn't doing well in school and i had i was told by my first grade teacher i'll never be able to read never be able to write probably never communicate effectively never go very far and not amount to much but I knew how to st stand on a surfboard and I knew how to throw a baseball. <laughs> so I, <laughs> when you're young, that's what's important too. So absolutely. No, I just want to surf. Well, I mean that when you're coming in there with this, the pressures when you're young are, are enormous because we don't know who we are just yet. We're still developing. And at the, the tender age of the first grade to, to have that kind of news shed on you, um, you know, you're in an immediate test of your character and your survival. Uh, what are we in the first grade, six or seven years old? That's extremely yep. uh, heavy weight to put on a, on a child. So with both then you had a bit of a mental deficiency and a physical deficiency what is life moving like then getting through school? So you're, you know. Well, right now I can tell you, I'm very grateful that she said that because that led me down a different path, a different trajectory where where I am today. I wouldn't be where I am today. But the only way I was able to make it through school was by asking the smartest kids questions, which I'm known for today is asking questions. So uh, I survived by asking the smartest kids in the classes what did they learn from the class? What did they get from their reading? Tell me what they learned. Share it with me. I'd love to learn from you. You're the brightest kid in the class. So I learned how to talk to them in a way where they would help me get through. And that worked till I was about 12, 13. And then my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, a small town. And there wasn't a whole lot of smart kids. We live in a really small town where there's a lot of social, um, racial issues and and it just wasn't most well, I mean, educated area. Also, too, when you come into an arena where it's not heavily populated, everything kind of gets magnified. And then you're having a physical disability. Now, how long did you have these braces on? And then and did that carry on? The braces only lasted till four. Because okay. my dad said, you got to stay in the braces until you can prove to me that you can walk straight and use your arm and leg straight, which I made an incredible effort to prove to my dad that I could do it at age four going on five. So that was short lived on the braces. They were big clunking braces, kind of like a Forrest Gump kind of thing. I was thinking but, that. Yeah. But, but my, my learning difficult, I didn't really learn to read until I was 18. So that, that lingered. 
No, you, you go after junior high school and you're age 14 and you decide to quit high school. So, I mean, enormous decisions you're having here. You're not even 15, 16 years old. And these are life altering things that you've made decisions on. So what made you want to leave school and, and uh, where'd you go after that? I was a street kid starting at age 13 and I tried to continue to go to school, but I just didn't, it just didn't work. So I, at that time, loved surfing and Texas wasn't the surf capital. So I kept looking at Surfer Magazine and I wanted to go to California and Mexico and Hawaii and I wanted to be an endless summer kind of guy. <laughs> so I did at 14, at 14, I hitchhiked out to California and down into Mexico. At 15, I panhandled enough money in Huntington Beach, California to make a, a flight. Uh, it used to be $86. So I panned enough money to get $86 to go to Hawaii. I lived under a bridge there at first, then in a park bench, then a bathroom, and then a abandoned car, and finally a tent. I kept social climbing. And then I ended up uh, living in Hawaii. And I rode big waves. And That's I got in some amazing surf- amount of courage and 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 fortitude because I mean it didn't there's... seem like it. It just seemed like I wanted to go surfing. Oh, <laughs> I didn't wow. think it was courageous. Wow. I just wanted to go surfing. That well, I mean, those those types of conditions can wear on you heavily. It's like it, it apparently it's obviously paid off to make you a, a tougher, stronger person. So you you make your way over to University of Houston. Now, how do you get into University of Houston without a high school degree? And, and what kind of self-development were you doing at this point? Well, there's a bit of a story there. I almost died when I was 17, just right before I turned 18 of, of uh, a surfing issue. And um, then in the recovery of that, I was led to a health food store and then to a yoga class. So I started doing yoga at 17. And at the yoga class, there was a special guest speaker named Paul C. Bragg who's the one that started Jack Elaine's career and, and, and Steve Jobs. He impacted a lot of people, this guy. And one night and one hour, this one man with one message absolutely inspired me and made me believe I could overcome my learning problems someday, learn how to read and become intelligent. I just don't know how to describe it. It was an epiphany night. And I, I thought I could pull this off. So I ended up uh, flying to Los Angeles, hitchhiking back to Texas, my parents taught me into taking a GED, and I figured that well, I got nothing to lose if I pass it. I'm I got me a high school degree. If I don't, I got nothing to lose. So I went down there, closed my eyes, and started to say this internal dialogue that this man taught me that one night. He said, "I told him I didn't know how to read and I had I had speech impediment." He said, "Just say this to yourself: I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom, and say that every single day and never miss a day for the rest of your life. And sooner or later, the cells of your body will tingle with it, and so will the world." So I'm saying I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom, which didn't seem to be very true. And I closed my eyes and I took a, a pencil and I just filled in a little dot, and some friggin' miracle happened, and I passed this this test, and I had me a high school degree. My parents were going, "You did it." It was amazing. That is, that's a miracle right there. That I had to go is... back to college. I tried to start college. And uh, when I did that, I thought the same thing was going to happen. I was just going to say this affirmation and pass a test somehow. But my first class I ever took, I got, I had to have a 75 to pass and I got a 27. And I was so devastated by that. I ran to my car. I cried in my car and I drove home like a dog with a tail under its, uh, you know, back legs. And um, I went home and I curled up in a fetal position under this Bible stand that my mom had in the living room. And I just really sulked. And I really thought, man, I thought I was going to somehow become, you know, maybe intelligent and learn how to read. And that day, I just thought, there's no way. All I could hear is my first grade teacher. My mom came home from shopping. She saw me crying. She said, son, what happened? I said, mom, I blew the test. I got a 27. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate, you know, never mount thing, never go over it far. I'm sorry. She said something at that moment that changed my life. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream, and you, or you go back to ride giant waves in Hawaii like you've done, or return to the streets like you've done, I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. When she said that, my hand went into a fist. And I looked up and I saw the vision the night I met Paul Bragg of me being somehow intelligent, learning how to speak. 
And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading, studying, and learning. I'm going to master this thing called speaking and teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. And I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me, not even myself. And I made a commitment that I was going to step foot on every country on the face of the earth. I've now spoken in 187 countries. Wow. And I'm not quite finished. I still got 20 to go. <laughs> and so I... I, I my, I just went up and I, I hugged my mom. I went in the room and I got a dictionary out and I started memorizing 30 words a day. And she tested me on the pronunciation, spelling, application, and sentence use of 30 words a day until my vocabulary hit 20,000 words. And that allowed me to go back to school, then all of a sudden excel and then become a polymathic scholar. So I still read every single day of my life because I know I can. Yeah. I can relate to that one. That's, uh, I, I experienced cancer and I couldn't walk. And my priority has been just walking because I can. And I, I can totally relate to that. But what I want to do is, I mean, you can see how the man was forged at a very young age. I mean, before you're 20 years old, the foundation was set of who you would become. When I was 17, I knew my vision. It's painted. I had a painter paint this vision it sits in my office now. It's five foot by four foot painting. And uh, so I knew clearly what I wanted to do at 17, right before my 18th birthday. Now, the exciting part of this is it, it, all these books and the self-development, you can see where they, they came from. You got a fire inside of you that's just blazing. So um, share with me a bit about the Demartini Institute and how we determine our values. Well, the Institute is something I, I really started really in 1982, really. I mean, I was teaching already, but I didn't really formalize it. Started in 1982, I kind of formalized it a bit. And I wanted to do research and learn everything I could about everything I could to do with anything to do with maximizing human awareness and potential, anything to do with living an extraordinary life. And then I wanted to write about each of those because I found that if I wrote about it and I spoke about it, I tend to retain it. So I set up a studies of wisdom in the curriculum of wisdom, I call it, uh, inside a concourse of wisdom, which was a confluence of people gathered to, to grow wisdom in their life. Because I was told when I, I didn't tell you, but it, I, I have cufflinks that say love and wisdom on it. Because Howard Hughes, when I was 14, I met Howard Hughes and he told me to, there's, there's two things they can never take away from you, young man. That's that your love and your wisdom. So you learn how to read. So he was the one that told me, but I didn't read till I was 18, but he told me to learn how to read. So he put uh, the book Plato and Aristotle in front of me when I was 14 in a library in El Paso, Texas. He happened to be at, uh, he saw me on the streets and he basically pulled me to a library and told me to learn how to read. Amazing thing. He was there That's doing it in El Paso. That's a very interesting story. So you're on the streets in, in Texas and you meet Howard Hughes. I met Howard Hughes and, and uh, I didn't know who he was at the time, but then a bunch of puzzle pieces came back and I met people in the family and I found oh my god that was him because he said he was one of the wealthiest men in the world but I thought yeah 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 everybody says something but um but it turned out to be once I saw the picture of it I went oh my god that's the guy so it kind of flipped me out at first because you know when I first found out about it I was going oh my I just didn't have any idea this guy was not joking yeah in his own way, how he ostracized himself from society, he could probably relate to you in a way you never would imagine until you did get well, he older. He saw me on the street. He saw me on the street of El Paso, Texas, confronting three cowboys that were attacking me on the street because I was a long-haired surfer. Cowboys and surfers didn't get along in that time. So they were attacking and picking on me on the streets. And I didn't know what to do except growl and bark like a wild animal. That's the only thing I could think of. And he saw that and he laughed, he laughed his butt off and he came up to me and he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, Sonny, that's the funniest dang thing I've ever seen. Can I buy you a coffee? I said, I don't drink coffee. Can I buy you a Coca-Cola? And I said, yes, sir. Connect with us on LinkedIn. Be our friend on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You are listening to Vince Cortez. We just want you to leave your mic. So he took me to a malt shop and got me a Coca-Cola, and we sat there, and he says, are you a runaway? And I said, well, sort of. I mean, I'm not really a runaway. I'm just a man on a mission, boy on a mission, wants to go surfing. He said, are you through with your Coke? He said, yeah, then follow me. I got I got two things I want to teach you. And he took me a few blocks up to the downtown El Paso library, and uh, 
he's he, he literally put my stuff, my surfboard and my duffel bag right at the entrance with this old lady at the information booth. And we went in the library and he sat me down at the at the table and went off to the bookshelves and brought back Plato and Aristotle. And then he said, young man, there's two things I got to teach you. Number one, don't ever judge a book by its cover. He says, you probably think I'm some old bum on the street, but I'm one of the wealthiest men in the world. I got everything that money can buy. I got planes and businesses and cars and ships and all kind of stuff. And I thought, I don't know about that. Seemed like an old guy in the street because he was, this is, not, this is right before he was about to go into Vegas, you know? And uh, so all of a sudden he said, now number two, and he took my right hand and stuck it on the books. He says, now you learn how to read boy. You learn how to read because there's only two things they can never take away from you. And that is your love and your wisdom. They can take away your loved ones. They can take away your possessions. They can never take away your love and wisdom. You gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom, my cufflinks. And I, I remember that. He said, you don't ever forget that. You promised me, boy. I never did. I just didn't learn how to read till I was 18. But I can tell you that that was, I look back at my life and I go, all the things that occurred in my life, all the setbacks and challenges, if I hadn't had constraint, I wouldn't be traveling around the world today. I live on one of the biggest ships on the planet, you know, that's privately owned. And I, I travel all over the world, all the countries. And they said, they never communicate. I've reached a lot of people, billions of people. And they said, you never amount to anything. I'm pretty well, very wealthy guy today. They said, you never be able to, uh, you know, speak properly. And I speak, I've done 343 presentations, seminars this year. You know, everything that I was told I wasn't going to do is what I end up specializing. That's why I wish I could have told that teacher, thank you. you. There's no mistakes about that journey. There's no mistakes being on the streets. There's no mistakes living in the in a park bench. Every one of those things is thank you today. Anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel, the way I look at it. You can be a victim of your history. You can be a master of your destiny. So I'm a believer that, you know, whatever is happening in your life, how is it helping you fulfill what's meaningful to you? That's a really important question. Let me ask you this. How much of this part of your life is 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 still not necessarily playing out? Like you said, what is how much of it that you actually were doing then that you're doing now? Like the desire and the fire, like you, you were very instinctive then. Now you're wise and you you have experience so is is that foundation as you just said had to happen in order for you to turn into who you are now yeah i think so but but i was really determined to surf i mean i was willing to do whatever it takes to go surfing. <laughs> you really like I, the water. I just i mean it's a hitchhike to california and down into mexico mexico I, I illegally entered the country and illegally got out of the country you know there, there was no trump wall or anything like we just we just went across the borders <laughs> But, but I, I wanted to, you know, surf. So wherever the surf was, I was headed and I wanted to go ride in Hawaii. So I was determined as much as I am to teach today as I was to surf, I think. And I used to surf 11 hours a day. Wow. I was out at 540 in the morning and surf until 11, come in and go back out. Yeah, I was insane. I, I just, when I set my mind to do something, I wanted to do it, I think. So I think I, it, it's not like I had a lack of certain type of intelligence. It just wasn't academic reading and speaking intelligence. Your self-development is just, it's amazing that what you can do when the determination shows up. So I wanted to touch on that. So on your Demartini method, um, you you reference uh, uh, seven greatest powers, but um, how then do you come up with the spiritual, vocational, mental quest and um, how much did those actually apply to you? Completely. When I was 18 years old and I moved back to Texas, right at that time, there was a TV show on called Kung Fu with David Carradine. I remember that show. Yeah, 73. And so, and he talked about a Shaolin master. It was his master that he kept, you know, having flashbacks uh, trained by the Shaolin master in different settings. And I thought, I want to be a master. It sounded cool. So I said, well, what exactly is a master? And I thought, well, I broke life into seven areas, spiritual, mental, career, financial, family, social, physical. And, and I thought, I want to master all those areas. I want to create original ideas that serve in this world, original, creative, innovative ideas that nobody has ever thought of that can contribute to the planet. That was, I wrote that down. 
then I want to say, I want to have a global business, which I have students in every country around the world today, but I had a dream. I want to make a global business. I want to touch every country on the earth and have students in every country. Then I wanted to be financial independent. I didn't know what that meant yet. I didn't grasp that till I was about 27, but I wanted to be financial independent. So I worked not because I had to, but because I loved to. I want to be in a position where I don't want to, I don't have to work. I want to work because I absolutely love to do it. Then I want to have a global family. After reading Einstein's book, uh, he said, I'm a citizen of the world. And Epictetus talked about it. Socrates talked about it. And I thought, I want to be a citizen of the world. The ship that I live on is called the world. And it goes around the world. Then I said that I want to have social influence. I want to meet the most amazing people. Anybody that has global influence, I want to hang out. I want them as clients. I want to meet with them. I want them in my classes. I want to interact with them so I can have their ideas and influences run rub off on me kind of thing and be able to be of enough value to the world that they would be wanting to be with me. And then I want to be a vital energy guy. I'm 68 years old and I, I, you know, I put in 18, 20 hours a day. I love, I love cranking out. I want to be vital and have a full on experience about life. I didn't want to fade. And then I want to be inspired and I want to be inspired by a, a mission. And I didn't want to be a follower of some um, a religion, even though I've studied 3000 different religions and philosophies over the years, I, I didn't want to be stuck in any one of them. I wanted to encompass the essence, the perennial philosophies that encompassed all of them. And I believe that that's the, the love of the universe itself and uh, the, the pursuit of understanding of the laws of the universe and to be able to be grateful for your job and life. I would say if you're grateful for what you're doing, you love what you're doing, you're inspired by a vision, you're enthusiastic workly, you're certain about your skills and you're present when you do it, you're having a fulfilling life. So that's, I set that out at 18. I wanted to do that. And I kept refining that and polishing that and sharing anything that could help people empower those areas. Those are what I call the seven powers. And so I've been working on that for 50 years now, teaching over 50 years now. Now, when you first started out, was that a, like a crystal clear vision or was that more of a... No, it kept unfolding. The seven areas were there, but, and I wrote down what I knew. I, I learned a thing from Paul Bragg. Uh, that start with what you know and let what you know grow. Don't write something that's wishy-washy. Don't write something that's fantasy. Write something that you you can look in the mirror and see, I'm showing evidence of making this come true. This is really important to me. And to prioritize that and focus on what's really important and start with what you know and build a, a, a foundation of goals that are built on that. Then I want to build, I want to study the the greatest teachings on the face of the earth by the greatest minds to build a foundation of knowledge. That's how I became the polymath. I started, I made a list of every known discipline that you could study. And then I made a commitment to read at least a hundred books in each of those areas, which would be like a PhD. And then I'd like to find the most common threads to all of those disciplines and use that as a body of knowledge that I could build on. So physics and chemistry and geology and anthropology, every friggin' field I could get my hands on. I wanted to devour that and find out what's the common thread now in all these about human mastery. That's been my mission. Wow. Now, when you're currently doing what you do, um, how are you refining, like staying on top of your game? So, I mean, all of these books, you're still reading books or uh, is artificial intelligence come in on this self-development as well? Like, Oh, anything that allows me to learn. I mean, it used to be, I used to buy 40 to 70 books a week on average. Today, I don't buy as many books as everything's online. Uh -huh. So I just live online studying. If I'm not teaching, I'm online. And uh, I also have accumulated around the world experts in their field. And I, you know, if I meet an anthropologist like Leakey or I meet, uh, you know, primatist, primatologist, like Goodall or whatever, I meet them, I tell them, anytime you come across anything that is at the most amazing cutting edge, send it my email and I get my emails. So I have people sending me information, but I'm also researching. And I keep up with a bunch of journals. You know, I've read every Scientific American journal since 1973. I, you know, I've read a lot of different journals. So I'm constantly keeping up with it and I'm getting information from people. And my students also are researching and sending me new stuff all the time. So I, I just devour information most. If I'm not teaching, I'm doing that. No, well, in, in your institution, um, uh, these people are coming to you for change. Um, what are the methods uh, besides your greatest powers and using those as reference points? How do you spark change in these people? 
the first thing is that every human being lives by a set of priorities, a set of values that are unique to them, things that are most to least important in their life. And most people, if you ask them what their values are, I've done value determinations for 45 years and they'll tell you a lie because they don't know themselves. They'll tell you social idealisms, mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, you know, conventions, traditions, mores of society about what they think they should be, ought to be, supposed to be. You know, they live by imperatives. And I've developed a methodology that's really 13 questions that get past all the BS and get into what your life demonstrates, not what you fantasize about, not what you wish it would be or hope it would be or what it used to be. What does your life demonstrate now in your life? And I've gone through, and it's on my website. It's free. It's complimentary for anybody that wants to go on there. It's just Demartini Value Determination. But it's a really, really amazing 13 questions that make you reflect. Almost everybody that goes on there, they go, whoa, now I look at, no wonder my life's in this direction. Because I remember I was asking one time in, in uh, Johannesburg, I was speaking to about 5,000 people. And I said, how many of you want to be financially independent? And they all put their hands up and legs up in the air. I said, how many are financially independent? And they all put them down. <laughs> Seven out of 5,000 people were financially independent. I defined financial independent as passive income exceeding active income. You don't have to work. You work because you love to. All the hands went down. And I said, then I said, now pull out a piece of paper. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. And you're going to write down, if I gave you $10 million, what would you do with 10 million US dollars? I said, you got 60 seconds. You got, you have to write the 10 things you would do is $10 million on your market set. Go. They'd write down as fast as they could what they would do if they had $10 million. And afterwards, I tell them to now turn it to the guy on the left or the guy on the left. And then I said, now calculate how much of those total assets that you were given, how much of those are still assets and how much got all of a sudden, uh, you know, bought consumables that depreciated in value. Between 20 and 80% of the people in the room spent 20 to, no, all the people in the room spent 20 to 80% of their assets on consumables that went down in value in 60 seconds. And I said, that is what you, you say you want to be financially independent, but that's what's going on. So we need to look at what you really value because you're lying to yourself. You, If you don't have financial independence, you don't really care about it. Money automatically circulates through the economy from those who value at least to those who value most. So I just made them wake up and realize that they're lying to themselves. And people do this in every year of their life. They still want to have kids, but they don't have kids. I want to be married, but they don't have marriage. I'm looking at what your life demonstrates, not your words. Your actions speak everything about Because every perception, decision, and action life is based on what your values are. So I have a whole system on values to determine that. So, so people can become congruent. Because whatever's highest on your value, your identity, and what your feeling of mission revolves around, that's where you're going to excel. And you're going to end up floundering if you set goals and aren't really matching that. And so I help people decide that and clarify that and define that. And then I've also got a method that's called the Demartini method, which is something I've been working on for 50 years on how to dissolve all the baggage that we accumulate where we, because I said, anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. So all these judgments that you've had because you compared yourself to other people and you put them on pedestals or pits instead of putting them in your heart that you've judged yourself and other people that's distracting you, that's occupying space and time in your mind and running your subconscious mind and, and, and keeping you from being inspired by something and focused on it. So I, I have developed a method on how to dissolve all the baggage so you can be poised and present and purposeful and productive and patient and think long-term and set real objectives. That's what inspires me, watching people's lives' trajectories change. Your methods basically expand these people and they're kind of coming from a, a small-minded place where you're kind of opening them up um it sounds to me like your 13 questions is is where th they get to see if they're being truthful with themselves or not in their quest in this life uh, and or how committed they are i've only had one i've only had one vince in 45 years that was congruent only wow. one lady I just met with her in Israel the other day. I spoke in Israel. I just met her. She's got a lot of followers around the world. She's very influenced in, in Israel. And uh, she was the only person that came out purely congruent. Amazing. The majority of people have varying degrees of incongruency. They What they say, it's not walking their talk. They're limping their life. And they don't realize this because they, 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 they're so used to subordinating to the herd and instead of actually 
they're living vicariously through other people's brands instead of building a brand around their own vision and dream. And they don't realize that. So they're quoting what they think it should be instead of what their life is demonstrating. And that, that there's an incongruency. So I help them see that so they can start to take command and make a decision. Do you want to fit in and just follow society and be second at being somebody other than yourself? Or you want to be first at being you and find that one thing that really inspires you that makes you do something extraordinary. So this has in some ways like, uh, you know, dropping the baby in water to get them to swim. Um, how how did these people do when they kind of experience the, this uh, lack of truth or uh, cross up of our identity versus what they really are? All kinds of responses. Sometimes they respond regarding Ooh, no wonder my life's the way it is. I can see in my values exactly what my life is. I said, yes. They said, and I've been lying to myself. Yes. And now the question is, is do I have the courage to actually be myself? I said, you got two choices here. Either start structuring your life around what your values are, or I can show you how to shift your values because I can shift them too. I can show you how to reassociate in the brain and remodel the brain's neuroplastic pathways. And I can have you have a shift. I have people that have never saved money in their life, never gotten ahead. And showing them how to all of a sudden have a transformation in their, their perceptions and value on money and become all of a sudden financially viable. I've seen people that have never had any anxiety. They've had an anxiety about ever having kids. And we dissolve that and get their values structured and all of a sudden have pregnancies. I've seen all different types of things. So I always say either go and do what you love, uh, you know, by what you're doing now with your real values or shift your values to match the goals you say you want. But if you say you want to do something, if you don't have the values of it, you're going to self-defeat. If you are listening from Australia, Florida, or just from around the corner. From East Coast to West Coast outlets, if you're not into the dirty South straight, make a left body modern. Contact us. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. What would be in your journeys and meeting all of these people? Uh, what would you say is the best compliment you ever received for your work? Uh can I be a little risque on my language? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you most certainly can. All right. I was, when I was 18 years old, I um, would sometimes carpool from this Richmond, Texas, where my parents lived, to Wharton, Texas, which is, I had to go to a junior, junior college to start. University of Houston wouldn't let me in because I didn't have any background except a GED. And we would drive, and it was about a 45-minute drive, but we would meet about in, into Rosenberg, Texas, and then drive from Rosenberg. So we really had about a 30-minute drive from there. And uh, the guy that was driving with me had a dream of making magnetic trains. I mean, back in 1973, he was seriously an engineer designing, drawing, engineering magnetic trains of the future, which he went on to do. I mean, he made some of the most magnif magnificent magnet magnetic trains. So we would sit and talk about our dreams. I told him I wanted to travel the world and teach and overcome my learning problems and become intelligent. And we would have a chat and we'd tell each other about the dreams and we were kind of encouraging each other. And one day we had a guy in the back seat that got a ride with us. That was a very wealthy kid that was kind of spoiled. And um, he was sitting in the back seat. We were talking about our dreams. And he, he from the back seat, he said, yeah, 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 sure, John. You can barely speak. You know, hardly you dropped out of school because you couldn't read. You barely learned how to read. John, come on, get serious. You're going to end up working in a cotton gin like the rest of the people here. Nobody leaves this little town. You're going to end up being in a cotton gin. So get real, dude. This is a fantasy. You'll never end up being smart. I mean, God almighty, kid. So I just kind of went a little bit turned off by that because I would, this other guy, we looked at each other and go, what a, what a crazy thing to say. Yeah. You know, just out of character. And he was telling the same thing to the guy, the magnetic trains. So anyway, we didn't let him drive with us anymore. That was the last time he got to carpool with us. <laughs> we thought we, we, I could say some things about what I thought about him at the time, but really what he was doing is challenging. Do I really believe this or not? Which is actually perfect because he was a little whispering part of my own consciousness trying to say, are you really serious about this? But I was, but he didn't know that. Well, a year and a half ago, I was on a international uh, Zoom of my own presentation, a webinar I was doing live. And we had about, I don't know, about 8,000 people or something like that on this thing. And uh, 
all of a sudden I get a blog that goes to my my office. It doesn't go to me. It goes to my office and said, is, is that the John D. Martini from Richmond, Texas? And my director sent it to me and said, do you recognize this guy? What do you want me to say to him? And it was the guy in the back seat. And I said, I said, tell him it's John from Richmond. Great to see you. Great to hear that you thank you for being on the on the on the webinar. And when I sent that back, she sent it back to him. And he said a little letter back, a little message. And he said, You fucking did it, man. Pardon my French or my English or whatever that is. <laughs> it means it means it means future understanding of conscious knowledge. That's an acronym. sacred acronym. I like that. Sacred acronym. But the point is the way he said that. And I, I didn't want to take that word out because it's meaningful to me. Right, yeah. It has it had something that was more than just a cuss word. It didn't mean it. I didn't get it as a cuss word. No. I saw it as you did it. Yes, yes. And uh, so that meant a lot to me after 48 and a half years. Wow. John, you're amazing how you can take these, what we would all take as derogatory or... Uh, demeaning type remarks and you're using them to fuel yourself your entire life. No, it's been, it, 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 anything that challenges you makes you rise up. When somebody challenges you, you go up higher on your values and you become more productive. When somebody supports you, you become lower and more dependent. It's the over, over supported wow. and over disabled guy that doesn't do much. It's the guy that's challenged. that becomes the entrepreneur. And so I lived as an entrepreneur from a young age. I learned how to, be street smart and ask for what I want and panhandle and all the basic stuff on how to get what you want in life. Wow. Well, uh, let me ask you, where do you see yourself in three years from now? What's going to be going on with uh, your Demartini Institute? I'm going to teach research and write and travel the world and keep writing books and just keep researching and keep doing it. Now you started out pre-internet. How much has the internet helped embellish and get your message out there? Well, the internet came somewhere in the 90s. And uh, at first, AOL, none of that was useful, but um, to me anyway. But by the time a real email came out and you could do research online, it became, you know, a daily, daily thing. I mean, emails and going on, I guess, search engines or Google or whatever. When those things came out, that's when that became mainstream for me. And I started doing live presentations the second the Zooms and all those type of things came out. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's very crucial. It's, it's, I mean, it's I, I, your life. Yeah, I mean, I could research faster. I could write faster. I could get material out people quicker. I mean, it just became more efficient. Now, I want to ask you a question. And you mentioned a thing about objectivity versus emotions. And it's been my experience thus far in this life that we actually don't make decisions with logic. We make them on emotion or, or desires of want. And I believe you kind of, you test that. Okay. So let's say you see this really hot girl, you're a guy and you're, you're, you're attracted to this girl and you're conscious of the upsides and blind to the downsides. Almost every guy can identify with a fatal attraction, you know, one of those at least. And, uh, you know, you think, oh, my God, this is the this is that special girl. Right. And then you find out that, you know, she stabs you or her name is Butch or something. So what happens is you're blinded to the downside when you're infatuated and whatever you're infatuated consumes space and time in your mind. And your amygdala assigns uh, valency to information when these ratios of perception are imbalanced and assigns and then stores that in the hippocampus and the entorhinal complex. And, and activates the brain in such a way that it, it perceives it as as uh, an impulse and prey to want to consume. So you want to consume the, the woman and consume time with her and consume whatever you want to, you know, literally be, she's prey to you. You want to eat her, and excuse the expression. And uh, so you take her out to dinner and you want to make love with her and things like that. But if you resent somebody, you're conscious of the downsides and unconscious of the upsides. And when you do, now you create an instinct. The, the valency of the amygdala now sets up an instinct to avoid. So one's a seek and one's an avoid. And so you're run by those emotions. And 99% of the world's population is run by emotions. 
And so they make decisions to avoid a pain and seek a pleasure, to avoid a you know disadvantage and seek an advantage. But there is a transcendent state, not an evoked potential, but a spontaneous potential when those are synthesized and synchronized. Wilhelm Wundt, the father of experimental psychology, talked about it. He said there's simultaneous contrast and sequential contrast. Sequential contrast are very emotionally valent by the amygdala, and you're running as a survival mentality. But there's a simultaneous contrast where you're seeing the pairs of opposites, and you're not blind to the downsides when you're infatuated or not blind to the upsides when you're depressed or resentful. You see both sides, and you're mindful, and you're poised, and you're present, and you're not seeking or avoiding. You're just present. And people, they don't make decisions there. They do spontaneous actions there. I'm not interested in teaching people how to make decisions. I'm interested in people how to be inspired and spontaneously act on the priorities of their dreams. So there's a big difference. So I show people that most people are automatons reacting. They're 200 to 800 milliseconds before they're even conscious. And they're living in systems one thinking, which is react before thinking and not systems two thinking where they're stop, they're thinking and reflecting with foresight instead of hindsight. They have foresight and they have pre-planning and they have an executive perception and they act. And most people don't really have to live in survival, but they choose to because of their misperceptions. So I teach people how to proact where they're objective. Objectivity means neutral, non-partial, non-opinionated and seeing both sides. And subjectivity means you're partial and you're biased and you're in a survival mode. So I'm interested in training people how to use their executive center, their media prefrontal cortex, which Scientific American September and October edition there had an article as the seat of the self. Our real self is the integrated portion of the media prefrontal cortex, which governs the amygdala and calms down the impulses and instincts that distract us from being present. I'm interested in people being present, inspired and focused on priority and delegating lower priority things and getting on with what's truly meaningful so they can excel. That's what I'm interested in. And that's not de emotional decision-making. That's foresight and, and acting spontaneously according to what inspires them. How long does that take somebody to get there? It's a state process. First, we determine what their values are so they know what it is. It's an aha. Then we start to prioritize their actions and learn how to delegate. And then we use the Demartini method to dissolve all the baggage, which forces them to react because all your subconsciously stored baggage from all the previous experiences are going to make you react. You don't even have time to think. And so most people don't even know that there's an alternative out there. Majority of people don't even know that's there, that that exists. And when they get a glimpse of what it's like, they go, whoa, this is a completely different world here. And they're not reacting, they're acting. And that's trainable. I mean, you can't go to, you can't be an astronaut until you're at that stage. Wow. They can't put somebody up there that's emotionally acting. They've got to they got to take every possible thing that could go wrong and they got to anticipate what it is and prepare and then rehearse those so they don't have time to think, they just act. And that's William James in his book on psycho principal psychology talked about rehearsing it until it's so clear that just you just act spontaneously. And that's what I'm interested in training people on doing. It's beyond mas it's beyond uh, you know operant conditioning by Skinner and conditioned reflexes it's it's beyond that this this is good to know because i like i we have a lot of i call them social or cultural dogmas and i think we touched on that yeah. a little bit there and um the idea of being pre-programmed without us knowing it is is really a big deal in our society i think with all of the uh information and the television the programming uh, even the programming coming through the phone and the internet People subordinate to that. anybody that you put above you and you're too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, you're going to inject the values of their their belief systems into your life. And it's going to cloud the clarity of your own mission. So mm -hmm. I show people how to own the traits of the greats and not put people on pedestals and be seconded, but be actually be first at being them. That's where their greatness is. They're not going to be great at being second to somebody else. And people who have the courage to actually be themselves, the magnificence of who they truly are is far greater than all the fantasies they impose on themselves about who they think they're going to be. This is awesome. I had a, today, I had a dinner tonight, right before I got here, and I had the time, and I went to the Cleveland uh, uh, hospital system uh, in Abu Dhabi. I'm in Abu Dhabi right now. Not, Dubai was yesterday. I'm in Abu Dhabi today. And so... Uh, the guy that founded that, the visionary that founded that, who's a famous heart surgeon, saw it as a vision and, and created this thing. And 
chatting with him, he was, he, I was just ticking off. He's, he's living what I'm describing and he's an innovator, a creator, a, you know, a visionary and negotiated with the sheiks of, uh, of the Emirates and put in the first hospital system here. That's in uh, extremely high standards like that. And, uh, but this is a visionary. These are self-actualizing individuals that see a vision and they go after it and they're not, they're not subordinating to somebody and, what will people think? And no, we don't, can't do that. And second guessing themselves, they're visionaries. You're either a, a borrowed visionary or a, an unborrowed visionary. It's the unborrowed visionaries as Ayn Rand describes it, that take command of the world. When you get to this skill level and you have this ability in, inside of your frontal cortex, is this is sounds to me like the essence of co-creation because now yes. you're not really in an emotional state you're not really in a logic state you're in a present state and yes. when, that's that's when the action happens so um could you describe that a little bit more clearly for me yes absolutely when you infatuate with somebody and put them on a pedestal you will inject their values anybody who's been highly infatuated with a girl or a guy knows that they sacrifice what's important to them the first few weeks while they're together and do weird stuff to fit into their life for fear of loss of them. And that's why whenever you subordinate to somebody and too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, you're automatically going to be unconsciously injecting values from them and not even know it. And you think they're yours, but they're not. They're other people's. And you hear it by Freudian imperative language. I got to do this. I have to do this. I must do this. I should oh, wow. do this. I'm supposed to do this. I, I, I ought to be doing this. I need to be doing that. Anytime you hear that, that's not you. That's an injected by uh, value by an authority, which Freud called the superego, which is an internal moralizing force inside yourself because you have an internal conflict between what you think you should be doing according to the authorities you've given and yourself. And you got a conflict. And you can't, mm -hmm. when you got a brake pedal on like that, you can't excel. And the same time when you resent somebody, you tend to project your values onto people. And you say, you should, you ought to, you're supposed to. Oh, yeah. And they can't live in your values and you can't live in somebody else's values. You can do it for a few weeks, but you won't sustain it. It's right. a non-sustainable futile step. So anytime you're trying to get others to live in your values or you're trying to live in other people's values, you have an internal conflict and you feel you don't have free will. You don't. You're an automaton reacting to misperceptions and you're infatuated or resentful, which is occupying space and time and mind and distracting you. And your amygdala is running your life with seeking and avoiding instead of actually being present and poised and purposeful and patiently pursuing something that's deeply meaningful to you. Wow. The mean between the two extremes, as Aristotle said, the golden mean. And he was accurate then, and it's still solid today. Yeah, the, I would say. It's just the pairs of opposites. You know, and, and the, the Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. And people suffer a lot because they're trying to live in other people's values and wondering they're living with all these shoulds and you should and I should. And, and they don't realize that mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions are running their life. And they're basically part of the herd instead of going out and getting herd. <laughs> if, you don't govern your, if you don't govern yourself with your physiology and psychology, you're going to be governed by political philosophy and you're going to be governed by religion, which is the opium of the masses. That's extremely powerful what you just said right there. Well, I I don't want to keep you up. I, I really appreciate your time. I do want to ask you a couple more questions, though. If you have a story to share, tell us. How are you going to leave your, leave mark? your mark? Contact us. Leave your mark with our host, Vince Cortez. Be our guest. You could have a billboard if you wanted it. What would you put on it? Let's do this with you just for the sake of it. Let's make it on the side of a ship. Well, it just says the world right now. <laughs> but, um. I would tell people, no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love, man. People are judging themselves according to other people and the moral hypocrisies that they're surrounded by, by people that are projecting. And remember, as, as I believe it was a biblical New Testament statement, Romans 2.1, I believe it was, that said those who judge uh, are actually doing the very thing they judge. And so all the hypocrites that are projecting their judgments onto you are actually telling you about what their life is really about. And so if you sit there and live by the moral hypocrisies of other people, don't ever expect to master your life. Oh, wow. That's extreme. No matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. And give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, and to do something extraordinary, not ordinary. Because that's the real you. The real you is, or is extraordinary. It's not an ordinary person. But the facades that you built into yourself has shrunk you. And that's why you end up with the shrink. 
I'm not a shrink. I take, I'm a stretcher. I stretch people. I like that. <laughs> okay, Dr. Martini, how would you like to leave your mark? My mark is to continue to do what I'm doing. I wrote a posthumous biography in 1999 that I, you know, what I wanted, what, what legacy I want to leave a thousand years in the future. And I got it from Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake there in, in Italy and and Rome and everything else, because he was a renegade. And he, he said, we lived in an infinite universe with infinite world, infinite beings. And the church couldn't handle that because they were geocentric and Aristotelian. And he was outside the box. He led, he studied Lacritius and, and other great minds and said, no, no, there's an infinitude out there. And uh, so when I read his posthumous biography, I realized that 400 years to the day after he had written it, it came true. So I wrote a posthumous biography a thousand years in the future, how I want to be perceived. And in, in, that I wrote in 1999. In 2008, I was at the Melk Abbey in Austria, and I was speaking with 12 speakers to 200 people from different parts of the world that were involved in six issues in the world, world's issue, from hunger to water to you name it, pollution and jobs and unemployment. And I got to be one of the speakers. And after we finished the speaking, on on Friday, no, Saturday night, we all went into the Milk Library. Looked like the Sistine Chapel. If you ever see a picture of it, it's worth looking up. And if and they gave us a stainless steel cylinder. In my case, it had 365 quotes from some of my books and the Demartini method calligraphied with gold calligraphy on this magnificent thing with a gold ribbon put and sealed airtight in this you know, 13 inch or 12 inch by four inch or so uh, cylinder, air sealed. And then we went down through this library, down to the end of the library shelf uh, shelves. And there's a special vaulted room where they store manuscripts and things for a long time. And in there, they had an infinity of divinity library shelf. And they gave me the opportunity to put it right in the center of that shelf and to be stored in that room for a thousand years. So I'm a firm believer that, you know, we go around and we say we're immortal souls in religion, but no one ever sets immortal goals to match it. It's all hypocrisy. Oh, wow. Why not try to set goals that last beyond your life? You Seneca said that you measure an individual by their most distant ends. Tell me the magnitude of space and time and their innermost dominant thought, and I'll tell you where they're going in life. So I'm a firm believer in expanding your, your vision and your, your actions beyond your life. People living in their executive center set goals that are for perpetuity. This is exciting. Well, I want to leave you a moment here to uh, share with the audience where we can find your information. Uh, we'll post all this stuff in the video below the links, but what, what would be most important or easiest to find you right now? Just drdmartini.com. Just D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. Drdmartini.com. And on there is that value determination process. It's free. It's complimentary. It's private. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, and do it again a week from now and do it again a month from now and make sure you didn't lie because so many people are afraid of facing the truth about their life. So answer those questions as honestly as you can and it will be revealing. This is excellent. Dr. Martini. I appreciate your time so much. This was fantastic. Extremely enlightening. Very exciting. It, it, it's, you are an amazing man. Well, I love what I do and I hope to hope to inspire other people to do the same in their lives. So you obviously do too, because you can see it in your enthusiasm. So thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I'm, I'm most, most appreciative. Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. Be blessed. You just left your mark. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez.